For the last five weeks, we have been studying the life of David, and we've covered a great amount of material in just a short amount of time. It just seems like yesterday that we were introduced to that ruddy, young, handsome shepherd boy who watched his father's flock. We noticed how David went with unwavering faith and decisively defeated the giant named Goliath with a sling and a stone. We watched how David transformed a cave into a cathedral of praise as he worshipfully waited for God to deliver him. We marveled at how David overcame adversity from the insanely jealous King Saul. We took note how David ascended to the throne at the young age of 30, subdued the Philistines, and with obsessive obedience, he retrieved the ark of God and brought it back safely into the city of God. Now David is king. The ark of God is in the capital city of Jerusalem. All the enemies have been subdued. And now David wants to do something nice for the Lord. And who could blame him? David took an inventory of his life and he came to this conclusion. If it were not for the gracious goodness of God, where would I be today? I think that may be where some of your story intersects with David's story. Probably more than a handful of us could say the very same thing. That if it wasn't for the gracious goodness of God, where would I be today? But David had to come to this discovery that God had outdone him and God had outblessed him. David wanted to do something nice for the Lord only to discover that God had outdone him. David wanted to bless the Lord only to discover that God had outblessed him. That is the nature of God Almighty. He is one who simply outdoes us and outblesses us. So this morning I invite you to take a copy of God's Word, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, simply want to entitle the sermon, Outdone and Outblessed. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'll be reading verses 1 to 17. At the top of this passage it's simply entitled, God's Promise to David. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. And Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Yet that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought up the Israelites out of Egypt to this very day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on the earth. And I'll provide a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so they can have a home 
of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since that time. I appointed leaders or judges over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rods of men, with floggings inflicted by men, but my love will never be taken away from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Outdone and outblessed. To God be the glory. You may be seated. David had taken, taken an inventory of his life. And he said, you know, here I am in the safe, wonderful confines of a beautiful palace made of cedar. But as I look out the window, I see that the ark of God is in a tent. That doesn't seem right. I tell you what, I'm going to do something good for the Lord. He shared this with his good friend, the prophet named Nathan. Nathan said to his king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, because the Lord is with you. Later that night, God sent a corrective word to Nathan the prophet. This is what the Lord says. Go and tell my servant David, I am the Lord Almighty. Are you the one who's going to build me a house to dwell in? I haven't dwelt in a house from any time in human history, I didn't dwell in houses when I brought my children up out of Egypt to this very day. In fact, when I was leading them in the desert, the Lord implies I was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I have been resting in front of them in a tent. I've been moving from place to place. I have never asked any leader, any judge to build for me a house of cedar. In fact, David, what you have as a good intention, maybe you have failed to remember that I'm at home anywhere, the Lord says, because my home is everywhere. What God is implying to David is that you cannot contain omnipotence. You can't restrain omnipresence. You cannot apprehend omniscience. There's no way that you can put boundaries and jurisdictions around God Almighty because God is everywhere. Not only is God so big that everywhere he turns he bumps into himself, but all of God is everywhere so that all of God is here and all of God is there and all of God is up there and all of God is down there. There's no place you go that you don't bump into the totality of God Almighty because our God is so sovereign. He is the creator of time and space, and he lives outside of time and space, and he subjects himself to time and space. So there's no place where God is out of bounds. 
because of his mere presence, no place becomes someplace. And nowhere becomes somewhere simply because God is there. So God makes a name for himself in every corner of every place on this planet and throughout the universe. And the Lord says to David, are you the one who's going to build me a house? Are you the one who's going to do this grand, glorious thing for me? It is the Lord who reminds David of the divine initiative. God says, David, I'm the one who lifted you out of the pasture and plopped you into a palace made of cedar. I'm the one who put down all your enemies. I'm the one who established your name. I'm the one who put everything into order. And David, now I'm going to outdo you and I'm going to outbless you. Because not only am I the one who's taken the initiative, but I'm going to make your name great. You'll have a great name like the greatest of men to have ever walked the sod. You will be a great individual. In fact, your house, your kingdom, your throne will be established forever. Your descendant will sit on your throne and I will be his father and he will be my son. Whenever he does wrong, I will correct him with the rods of men. I will inflict punishment upon him, but never will my love be taken away from him. It will not be the case as it was with Saul, your predecessor. No, I am making a promise to you, David, the promise to you and to your descendant and to all of your descendants that there will never be a time when someone from the descendant of David will not be seated as King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the promise, David, that I make to you. David thought he was going to bless the Lord, thought he was going to do something great for God, and God says, I am going to outdo you and I'm going to outbless you. I am the one who has orchestrated all of your life and I'm the one who's going to make your name great and establish your kingdom both now and forevermore. There have been many people who have seen in 2 Samuel chapter 7 one of the greatest theological statements in all the Old Testament. In fact, Walter Brueggemann, who is a tremendous Old Testament scholar, said that there is not one more crucial theological statement than the one given to us in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That everything hinges around the reality that God has made a covenant with David. And this covenant declares that the kingdom of David, the house of David, the legacy of David, the throne of David will be established henceforth and forevermore. And God has made a covenant. A covenant is a Bible term it's a word that means a, a treaty or an agreement. Usually it's between two parties. A covenant is drastically different than a contract, though. A contract is also an agreement between two parties, but a contract is based on both parties keeping up their end of the bargain. That if at any point one party breaks the contract, then the contract's null and void. A covenant is not a contract. A covenant is a unilateral agreement. And throughout the scripture, it is God who always initiates the covenant. It is God who enters into a promise, enters into a relationship, enters into a treaty with a person or a group of people. And it is God who initiates, confirms, and keeps all covenants. When I say that he initiates, what I mean is that 
he is the one who originates the covenant. Nobody ever goes to God in the scripture and says, hey, I want to start a covenant with you. No, it is always God who initiates the covenant. It is God who confirms the covenant. What do I mean by that? I mean, it is the Lord who sets up the stipulations, the regulations, the criteria of the covenant. And it is God who always keeps the covenant. What I mean by that is that God always keeps up his end of the bargain. It's a unilateral agreement. It's where God says, I will be faithful to my promise to you, even if you are not faithful to your stipulations and your requirements unto me. I will still be faithful unto you. This is calls John Piper to simply label all covenants as God's job descriptions. That in a covenant, God gives us his job description. He describes who he is and what he will do. That's his job description. And so every covenant you come across is a job description of God that he gives to his people. Let me also add this, that in the scripture, everybody always joyfully enters a covenant. They never enter begrudgingly. Nobody ever enters in and goes, oh, well, okay, if you force me to, I'll enter this covenant. No, everybody joyfully, eagerly, graciously enters into a covenant. Why? Because they know that it is established by God, it is confirmed by God, it is kept by God, it's originated by God. He is going to keep up his end of the bargain. It's a promise that is given to, to, from God to his people. And so everybody joyfully enters into a covenant. What you have here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a covenant. It's a promise. It's a promise that God initiates. It's a promise that God sets up and establishes. It is a promise that God will keep. And he keeps it with his servant David. This is not the first covenant in the Bible. This is not the only covenant in the Bible. I guess you could say that one of the first covenants that God ever made was with Noah. You may recall early in Genesis where God made a covenant to really all of humanity through the person of Noah where the Lord said, I will never again flood the earth. This cosmic, chalismic activity, this is a one-time event. It will never happen again. I will never flood the earth. And as a sign that I will never flood the earth, the Lord said, I will put a rainbow in the sky. And for every generation that comes, after a rainstorm, that generation can look up into the sky and see my promise, my covenant, my sign of the covenant, that the rainbow is in the sky. And this covenant God made. And really Noah didn't have to do anything. He just had to say, okay. I mean, he had, he had no stipulation. There were no regulations. There was nothing Noah had to do. God just says, I enter into this covenant, Noah, with you, with your family, and with all of humanity. Now, I've made mention before, but it certainly bears repeating that uh, we need to start a massive movement that's hashtag take back the bow. Uh, when it comes to this thing called the rainbow, uh, this is God's sign of his first covenant that he gave to all of humanity. This is not a sign or symbol for any group of people with an alternative lifestyle in the LGBTQ community. And we as God's people, we need to say in a very polite way, yet a, a correct way, uh, hashtag take back the bow. We are going to take back the bow for God because this belongs to the Lord. This is God's first covenant.
covenant. It is his sign of his covenant, not just to Noah, but to all people where God says, you are so valuable that I will never flood the earth again, and this is my promise, and every time it rains, just look up to the heavens, and you'll see my sign stamped across the, uh, across, across the sky, because this is my sign of the covenant. Hashtag take back the bowl. Not only... Not only does God enter a covenant with Noah, but then years later, in Genesis chapter 12, he enters a covenant with Abraham. Theologians call it the Abrahamic covenant. Where the Lord said to Abraham, I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I will bless the entire world through you. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. Even though you think that you're barren, even though you think you and your spouse will never have any children, I tell you, you're going to be the father of the nations. And through your seed, singular, the entire world will be blessed. Now obviously, uh, we understand that to being that it's through Jesus, the seed of Abraham, that all the world is blessed with the possibility of salvation. For there is no one else, no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It is only through explicit faith in Jesus Christ that those who are condemned in sin can be saved both now and forevermore. And that is because of the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus himself. God made a promise to Abraham. That promise is fulfilled in Christ. Years later, the Lord made another covenant. It was on a mountain, Mount Sinai. It was a covenant that he entered into with the people of Israel through the messenger Moses. And in the Mosaic covenant, the Lord did something extraordinary. He said, I'm going to give my word to my people. That was a tremendous gift. God had not given his word to anybody else. He had not codified his word. He had not written it down. But yet on Mount Sinai, he gave all the stipulations. He etched in tablets of stone with his very finger the Ten Commandments. He said, this is who I am. This is what I expect. We are entering into a relationship, entering into a covenant, one with the other. And in the Mosaic covenant it is explicitly stated that obedience will bring blessing and disobedience will bring discipline or curses and on that mountain before Israel left the mountain that day they said everything the Lord has said we will do in other words we understand the stipulation we understand the requirement we know that God will be our God and we will be his people and we have been given the gifts of the very word of God and the presence of God and the power of God and the only thing that God requires for us is for us to love him with all of our heart soul mind and strength we know the stipulations we understand what God requires he wants all of us not just part of us he wants all of us from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet we will do everything Everything the Lord has said. Because everybody always joyfully enters into a covenant. You come to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this is another covenant. It's the Davidic covenant. And in this covenant, the Lord says to David, 
I will establish your throne forever. I, I will bless you and your son. In fact, uh, your offspring will be the one that will create the temple. You, you won't make the temple, but your offspring will. And I will be his father. He will be my son. Whenever he does wrong, I will, I'll punish him with rods inflicted by men. But my love will never leave him. My unconditional agape love will always, always abound in and through him. And your house, your kingdom, your throne will be established forever. Uh, David thought that he was going to make a house for God. God said, I'm going to make an eternal house for you. He thought, I'm going to make a kingdom for God. And God says, I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. He thought, I'm going to make a nice uh, palatial throne for you, O oh God. And the Lord says, no, I'm going to establish your throne forever. I'm going to outdo you and I'm going to outbless you. I'm going to do all this for you. Now, David understands that there are some stipulations to this covenant. You go to a place like 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 4. David is speaking to his son Solomon. And he said, this is what the Lord promised. That if we watch how we live, and if we walk faithfully with the Lord, with all of our heart and soul, then there will never be a day when one of our descendants is not on the throne in Israel. David gets it. David understands. He knows that this promise has been given to him by God, and the only stipulation is that David and Solomon and the future monarchs, they have to be holy. They have to be righteous. They have to be obedient to God. They have to be individuals. They have to be men of the Lord who love God with everything that's inside of them. And they watch how they walk and they watch how they talk. Now, even with me saying that, you know that's problematic. There's a little holy hunch that rises up inside of you and you think to yourself, wait a minute, I, I've, I've only known David for a few weeks here, but I already have a sneaking suspicion that he's not righteous and perfect. And some of you know a lot of David's story that we'll get to in weeks to come. And you know that his dynasty is flawed. That David will be guilty of immorality and adultery and murder. And Solomon, while it is the son of David, and, and while Solomon did build the temple for God, even Solomon will worship other gods. And after Solomon, the kingdom will be ripped to shreds. The northern kingdom of Israel will be divided from the southern kingdom of Judah. And the kings that sit on the throne, none of them are a righteous branch. None of them are, are very good and great. It is true that the southern kings of Judah are a little bit better than the northern kings of Israel, but all of them are pretty much pathetic. And because of their immorality and their lack of leadership and, and their unwillingness to walk the straight and narrow, because of that, the Assyrians will come in and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., the barbaric Babylonians will come in and uh, deport many of the best and brightest that Judah has to offer in 586 B.C. And all the while, people will ask the question, what's going to happen to the Davidic covenant? 
I mean, God made a promise, but now the kingdom's in shreds. God made a promise that there would always be a descendant of David on the throne, but now uh, the southern kingdom of Judah is in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. The northern kingdom is no more. What's going to happen? Did God make a promise that he cannot make good on? Did God provide a promise that he cannot support? I mean, has Israel been too disobedient? Have they gone too far? Is there any way for God's people to be reunited with God? And these are the questions that the people were asking the prophets. And you get to the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and it would seem that the way they answer it is the only way this is going to get fixed is if God does it. Because we don't see any righteous branch. We don't see any uh, great, good, moral leader coming along the pike. We, we don't see anybody who is who's worthy. We don't see a righteous branch. So Isaiah looks into the future and says, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And and the government will be upon his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his peace and his government, there shall be no end. He will sit on David's throne. And he will establish it. And he will affirm it with righteousness and peace henceforth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You hear what Isaiah is saying? That the only way for this to uh, make good on God's promise is for God to do it. Years later in the divided kingdom with Jeremiah living in the southern kingdom of Judah. Jeremiah says... The days of the Lord are coming when the Lord will raise up a righteous branch unto David. What is a righteous branch unto David? A righteous branch is a a king who acts wisely. One who is faithful in everything that he does. Jeremiah will later say that the days are coming when the Lord will make a new covenant with his people. He will write his word on their minds and inscribe it upon their hearts. God's going to have to do something new. God's going to have to do something spectacularly new. You come to Ezekiel and Ezekiel says, there will come a day, declares the Lord, when there will be a righteous king. There will be one who is a servant of David. He will be a shepherd to all the sheep of Israel. Not into a splintered, divided kingdom, but in a united kingdom. There will be one king for all the sheep of Israel. And all the while, whether it's Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, they're all declaring only God can make good on this Davidic covenant. Because we don't see any righteous branches. So is it it possible that God made a promise that he couldn't fulfill? Is is it even remotely possible that maybe God wanted to do something that that because of sinful humanity he was unable to do or perform? Oh, before 
you get into dire straits, my friends, can you just turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, where it says this is the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David. You remember what the Davidic covenant said? It said, I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I will bruise him with rods inflicted by men. But my love will never leave him. And I will establish his kingdom forever. What did God do in Jesus? In Jesus, we find the virgin who gave birth to a son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger in a Bethlehem barn. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. About the age of 30, it is Jesus who begins his public ministry. He comes to the waters of the Jordan to be baptized by his cousin John. And it is John who baptizes Jesus. And, and it's a beautiful uh, Trinitarian selfie where God the Father speaks and God the Son is baptized. And God the Spirit descends in the form of a dove. And as Jesus is coming up out of the waters of baptism, it is God the Father who says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen unto him. And Jesus, you know, did nothing wrong. However, Jesus was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastisement that brings us peace was squarely placed upon him. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So it was God's will for the Father to crucify Jesus for your sins and for mine. And Jesus was punished with the rods of men. He was slain. He was sacrificed. He was uh, taken up Calvary's hill. He was stretched wide. He was raised high. He took hell upon himself. The one who is innocent was draped in guilt so that we who are draped in guilt may be declared innocent in God's sight, there's a sweet swap of salvation that when we go to Calvary's hill, we give Jesus all of our sin and we take upon ourselves all of his glorious innocence so that Jesus is the one who is loved by the Father. So that Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 8 that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that the love of the Father never left the Son, that God the Father loved God the Son in and through the cross and through the cross through the grave and, and, and on Easter Sunday morning with the empty tomb that love cascades to all those who believe that's you and that's me because Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that was spoken a thousand years before the, ever, before the coming of Jesus into this world. The only one who could fulfill the stipulations of the Davidic covenant was Jesus. One day, uh, Jesus was walking on the streets, and he bumped into a blind man named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is introduced to us in Mark's gospel. What's interesting is that uh, this is one of the last miracles that Mark records. It's the only miracle where he gives us the name of the one who is healed, Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus was brought to his usual spot to do his usual thing. 
He was brought to sit and to beg, to eke out existence from one day to the next. As he sat on the edge of the road, amidst all the gravel and dirt and manure, as people traveled by, he would just simply ask alms for the poor. Any chump change you can spare in my direction. But on this given day, blind Bartimaeus somehow, someway heard and knew that Jesus of Nazareth was making his way by. And as Jesus got an earshot, blind Bartimaeus simply shouted at the top of his voice, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What's so interesting is that in Mark's gospel, this is the only time that Jesus is called son of David. It stops Jesus dead in his tracks. He turns around, he walks back, he kneels down and he asks this man, what do you want? And he said, I want to see. And Jesus says, your faith has healed you. That word heal can also be translated as saved. Jesus is speaking at two different levels, that faith not only heals you physically, but faith heals you spiritually. By your faith, you can see, not just optically, physically, but you can see spiritually, for you can see that I am Jesus, son of David. And in that moment, those blind eyes began to see. Perhaps the very first time ever, blind Bartimaeus opened his eyes and he was beholding Jesus. He stood up and he followed Jesus among the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That's an interesting story, isn't it? Because that story helps us to understand another layer to one of the greatest questions of humanity. Who is Jesus? We answer that question in numerous ways, don't we? We say Jesus is Christ, certainly is. We say Jesus is long away to Messiah, absolutely. We say Jesus is son of God and son of man. You bet your bottom dollar he is. But don't ever forget, Jesus is also son of David. In fact, when you get to the very last chapter of the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, Jesus identifies himself one last time. Before the canon of scripture is closed, Jesus identifies himself in this way. I am Jesus, the root, the offspring of David, the bright morning star. It would appear to me that Jesus wants us to know who he is. And he, at some level, is the perfect fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that is voiced by God to the servant named David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we find this culmination in Revelation chapter 22 where Jesus declares, I am the son of David. I am the one who is the long-awaited Messiah. Yes, I am Christ. Yes, I am son of God. Yes, I am son of man. Yes, I am the child that Isaiah spoke of. Yes, I'm the suffering servant that Isaiah foretold. Yes, I am the one that Jeremiah said would bring a new covenant in new blood. And yes, I am the shepherd of my people Israel. Exactly how Ezekiel proclaimed it. And Jesus wants us to know that yes, he is son of David. Who is Jesus? 
He's Christ. Long way to Messiah. Son of God, son of man. Son of David. Like David, today you and I have to come to this conclusion to make this discovery. You know, I can't outdo God. And I can't outbless him. I am outdone and I'm outblessed. The only thing I can do is call on his name. Just like blind Bartimaeus, the only thing I can do is say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And I don't know if there's anybody else in the house today who just simply needs the mercy of Christ. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on my life. Have mercy on my family. Have mercy on my daughter. Have mercy on my son. Have mercy on my friends. Have mercy on the saints. Have mercy on my past. Have mercy on my present. Have mercy on my future. Have mercy on my finances. Have mercy on my problems. Have mercy on my worry. Have mercy upon my doubts. Have mercy upon my sickness. Have mercy upon my culture. Have mercy upon my country. Have mercy upon your church. Have mercy upon my brothers and sisters. Have mercy upon cancer patients. Have mercy upon marriages that are in dire straits. Have mercy upon people who are calling out to you, oh Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. And I wonder, and I wonder if there's anybody here who reaches the same conclusion today that I've reached. I'm outdone and I'm outblessed. And the only thing I have left to do is just call on the mercy of the Son of David. So, Jesus, Son of David, please have mercy on us. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Oh Lord, we give you this invitation. There are some saints that are hurting. There are some people that feel hopeless and helpless. There are individuals who need your good mercy today. So Lord, I pray that as we sing that we'll respond. We'll declare just how good you are. Some of us may need to come to the altar and beg and plead for mercy. Still others may need to come and ask for your forgiveness of sin. Still though, maybe some need to come and and make this church our home. Whatever it is that you're calling us to do today, help us to declare, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy upon us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.